My Car Guru, Season 11, Episode 45. Well, hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of My Car Guru. I'm doing what I can this morning to not get sued. So what do I mean? Well, let me give you a little bit of a back history. Back in probably 2001, we uh, started a, a new used car lot, a new used car lot, and it was called CarSmart. We thought that was a cute name, so we went with it. it we sold basically lower-end used cars when there used to be affordable lower-end used cars. There really aren't anymore, but um, there were back then. I mean, you could spend, I don't know, we could spend $1,500 on a used car and it would run and drive and, and last for you know another couple years. Uh, now you can't buy parts of a car for $1,500. It takes anywhere from six dollars to $10,000 to get something that's decent. But that was a, we thought that was a good name for a business that meant you know buying a car at that price range was a smart thing to do. So we went with it. We did that for, I think it was about 12 years before I got a letter in the mail uh, stating that I was being sued. It just so happened that there was a car dealer in Middle Tennessee that was also called CarSmart, and he had gone one extra step that I didn't even know about. He had registered his trade name and registered a trademark with that name. So he owned that name and nobody else could use it. Well, somehow, I don't know whether he was driving through East Tennessee or saw us online or whatever, but he hired a lawyer in Nashville to sue us for every single penny that we had taken in under the car smart name. And, and that was for every car that we had sold. He wanted to be reimbursed for that because we had stolen his name. Well, we really didn't steal his name. We just didn't know he had it. And so uh, I immediately called the lawyer and he was a nice guy, but he said, Lenny, shouldn't you, or Mr. Lawson, shouldn't you have your attorney call me? And I said, no, I'd rather not do that. I'd rather just figure out a way to solve this. There was nothing intentional here. And <clears throat> I mean, I think it's quite ridiculous to sue us for everything that, for everything that we sold uh, for that period of time. I mean, that would put me under. And he said, I understand what you're saying. What, what do you propose? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't know what to propose. I mean, I'll pay him something. I'll change the name. I'll do whatever we need to do. But I don't want uh, to go to court, and I would just soon avoid paying a bunch of money. So see what he says. Well, let me talk to my client. That's exactly what he said. Well, a day or so later, he called me, and he said, well, I talked to my client, and here's what he'll do. If you'll pay us $10,000 and promise to never use the name, drop the name from all of your marketing, take your signs down, do everything, then, then we'll be happy. I said, well, let me think about it. So I called him the next day and I said, I'll pay $5,000 and do everything else. He, he said, well, let me talk to my client. Well, he called his client and his client said, okay. So it cost me $5,000 plus renaming my business because I didn't do what I'm doing now. So I'm getting ready to open another new business. And today or this morning, I have been going to, uh, first I Googled it, and I needed to find out where do you go to register a trade uh, trademark and a trade name. Now, you don't need to register a trademark 
unless you're going to be operating in all 50 states or outside of your state. Uh, you just need to register a trade name, and you have to make sure that there's no other businesses in Tennessee that use the same name so you don't get sued. So that's what I've been doing, and I've found a good name, and it, it's very applicable to our business. You know, what do you call a business? What do you name it? Um, you know, people get really cute with names. You see a lot of interesting names for restaurants and boutiques and things like that. But one of the things I learned many years ago is that your name should kind of give an indication of what you do. And this applies more to a small business than it does to a large business. I'm looking at a hat that I wore today. I don't know why I wore this hat. Maybe because I my hair was all messed up this morning. I got a haircut from somebody different than my 86-year-old barber. And I'm not real happy with it. So I'm covering it up. But this hat says Costa on it. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's a brand. It's a clothing brand. Um, you know, you look at uh, some businesses are named after the people who founded the business. I mean, Apple certainly doesn't say what that company does, uh, but that is their logo. And of course, they've been a very successful company. But if you are a small business operating in a small town, and maybe you're an exterminator, well, calling it Billy Bob's Extermination, that tells people what you do. If you say Bugs are us, then are you selling Volkswagen Beetles? Do you spray bugs? Um, you know, it, it just doesn't clearly delineate what you do. So you have to pick a, a good name and you have to register it. And that's what I'm going to do. So I'm excited about this new business opportunity. I can't believe I'm taking on something like this at my advanced age. But I believe that it is a... Uh, I think it'll help my car business, quite frankly, and I think that it will um, probably be a wonderful opportunity for my young partners who are going to actually be operating it. Hopefully, I can get to the point where they just send me a check. That's really all that I need at this point. Okay, I'll take my first break. I'll be back here in just one minute. Okay, I am back. You know, I've always been fascinated with mechanical things. Uh, I was fairly adept at taking something apart and putting it back together without having too many pieces left over. <laughs> I know you're not supposed to have any pieces left over. That's why nobody would ever hire me as a mechanic. If, if I were a young person still in high school, um, really, I guess they start technical school around 10th grade or maybe 9th grade, I would definitely take a small engine repair class or a, or a mechanical class. Pro maybe not body work unless I was going to thought I had a future in hot rods and things like that. Kind of would have been a, a good class for me to take since I do so many restorations and stuff. I've learned it on the job. But just to be able to take something apart and understand how it works. I mean, there's very few people I respect more than a mechanic, a really good mechanic. And they have really had to adapt over the years, especially since I got into the car business. I mean, in the 70s, 60s, and 70s, every engine, you look, you raise the hood and look under the, the look at the engine, and you could actually see the engine. Now they cover it all with plastic and because they don't want anybody getting in there, especially a, a homeowner or somebody, a, you know, a backyard mechanic. They want that left to the computer wizards that work at car dealerships today. Because, you know, back in the 70s, Carburetors, 
you know, the distributors had, had points and condensers in it. Um, we didn't have emission controls on vehicles. I mean, that, that was a, that came upon us in the seventies and we had to buy all kinds of special equipment that the technicians would be able to use to diagnose problems. And it, it was just an absolute mess. I mean, we had cars in the late sixties that had 350 horsepower. Those same cars, uh, after around 1973, we're lucky to have 150, 170 horsepower. And that was a Corvette. And government regulations and small controls were the culprits. That's what caused all this. But the manufacturers adapted. Uh, they learned how to use computers to control air and fuel mixtures going to, into the engine. And when they developed fuel injection, the first fuel injection that we really had on a mass scale, uh, I guess we saw it first on the Chevy Citation. They came out with something called throttle body fuel injection. That replaced the carburetor, Okay. And the carburetor, for those of you that don't know what a carburetor is, it basically controls the, the flow of air and fuel into the engine. When you put your foot on the gas, you're opening up the carburetor. It's, it's squirting more fuel into the engine, allowing more air to come in so that you can increase the speed of the engine. Well, when fuel injection came around, uh, it allowed them to fine-tune that delivery of fuel and air to a much greater extent. Now, Today, if you fast forward all the way to today, the fuel injection systems that we use no longer go through an intake. They actually go, or the fuel is, is injected directly into the cylinder, and the air, you know, is coming through the top of the engine, and it's controlled by the valves. And the valves are now controlled by computers, which uh, basically open and close the valves and adjust the timing all at the same time. Whereas before, those were all completely separate functions. Now the engine is monitoring itself and making adjustments based on the outside temperature, based on elevation. There's so many different factors that are involved in that. But that's why when you go out to your car now, you don't even have to touch the gas. You just turn the ignition and it starts. For those of you who remember the 60s and the 70s or the 50s for that matter, uh, it wasn't that easy. You had to pump the gas, you know, in order to try to get fuel into the carburetor. And then you had to crank and crank and crank. And, and you had to crank even more when it was colder. Don't have to do that now. The cars start up instantly. And that has pre precipitated basically a, a vast amount of uh, educational needs as far as technicians are concerned. And, you know, but without the fundamentals uh, of how an engine works, none of that other stuff really makes sense either. My guys spend most of their time on a computer hooked up to a vehicle analyzing issues. Well, I can't say, it's not really fair to say it most of the time. They spend a tremendous amount of time in diagnostics because they can't afford to get it wrong. There could be multiple different reasons a vehicle isn't running well. Well, the reason I wanted to talk about this is an, another huge innovation that has happened over the years is a transition from V8 engines to V6 engines to four-cylinder engines and now to three-cylinder engines. That's right, three cylinders. I remember the first vehicle that I remember selling as a three-cylinder was called a Geo Metro. It was the smallest car that we sold. It was built by, I think that car was built by Suzuki, the Metro. The uh, They had another car that was built by this, what was it called? Spectrum. And it was built by Isuzu. And then we also sold a Geo Prism, 
which was actually built by Toyota out in California. It was the same car as a Corolla. But that was my first experience with three cylinders. And it wasn't very good. I mean, it got 50 miles of the gallon, which was good, but it was very weak. Well, now, uh, because of the advances in computer technology, fuel injection, and turbocharging, you can take a three-cylinder engine, and it can outrun a lot of V8 engines from the past. Let me give you a few examples of vehicles that have three cylinders right now. Uh, Mini Coopers, or, or Mini, I should just say. They're built by BMW, and you know what they look like. Uh, you've seen them running around. Those have three-cylinder engines. The Mitsubishi Mirage, the Ford Escape, comes standard with a three-cylinder engine, as does the Ford Bronco Sport. I remember the first time I told somebody that this car has a three-cylinder engine. They said, what? This thing's got more power than my V6. I said, well, that's right. And it's because of uh, direct fuel injection and turbocharging. Even the Chevy Trailblazer that they sell has a three-cylinder engine. Buick Encore, Nissan Rogue base engine is a three-cylinder engine. And the Toyota GR Corolla, all of these cars have three cylinders. Now, what's the advantage there? Why would they do that? Well, it uses less fuel. It has less internal moving parts, and they're therefore cheaper to build. The increased use of three cylinders is basically following along with the trend of downsizing and boosting making smaller displacement engines, and using turbochargers and fuel injection to improve the fuel economy and also meet the emission regulations. Um, vehicles that were once powered by V8 engines now have V6s with turbocharging. Uh, vehicles that used to have V6 engines now have four-cylinders. The Mustang's a good choice. I mean, you can, get, you can still get a 5-liter Coyote V8 in a Mustang, but the alternative choice used to be a V6. It's not anymore. It's a 315-horsepower turbocharged four-cylinder, not a three-cylinder. They haven't dared put that in a Mustang yet. But if they did, more than likely, customers wouldn't know it. But what's going to happen in the coming years is a lot of it's being determined right now by the new EPA rules. Uh, these new stricter emission standards are going to force manufacturers to uh, continue the, uh, well, not continue the switch to EVs to really accelerate it. And you know how my, you know what my feelings are about EVs. Um, they're great. I love the way they drive. I just don't like the, all the other things that have to do with it. Like, is our, does our electric grid or will our electric grid be able to support it? I mean, the answer to me is an obvious no. You know, because think of all the, the uh, blackouts and stuff that they've had to have in California. We even had a few here uh, in recent years. Um, well, last summer, I believe, we had a few uh, blackouts where they wanted to, they had to do a rolling power outages because of the demand. And so, you know, they're going to have to figure something out to be able to provide the charging infrastructure and all that. And I just don't think it can happen in the time frame that the government is pushing. I don't know why there's such a big push for this right now. I understand all this talk about global warming and all that stuff, but it just seems that uh, we are jumping into something that we're simply not ready for, and I just wonder what the ulterior, ulterior motives are. I mean, how does this benefit the general public when, you know, we like our freedom? We love our mobility. You know, if I want to go jump in my vehicle and drive to Hilton Head, South Carolina, I can do it. And I know I can probably do it on one tank of fuel. But if I get low, I just pull into a gas station and fill it up. 
It's just not that way with electric vehicles. You don't know where the charging infrastructure is going to be. And when you get there, you don't know if it's going to be reliable or if it's working or not. So I'm, uh, I'm not there, as you know. Now, would I buy one? Yes, if I was just going to use it locally, you know, in this region. That, that makes sense. But what worries me is just the cost and how people are going to have to pay for it because all this new technology is, is going to be more expensive um, and basically, the manufacturers are sitting there saying, okay, well, if we're, if basically by 2030, 50% of all vehicles will have to be electric, why should we invest money in developing new technologies for the internal combustion engine? Even though companies like Porsche have developed a, a fully synthetic fuel that is made by combining you know, several different elements but the primary ingredient is carbon dioxide that's already in the air, and its only byproduct is carbon dioxide. Uh, so, you know, it, it doesn't create additional carbon dioxide. It just takes the existing amount that's here and turns it into a fuel, and then that's what it exhausts as well. Fascinating. I don't know how they do that. Uh, if you want to check it out, just, just Google Porsche uh, fuel art alternatives, and it'll tell you all about it because... You know, that could be the answer for a lot of the people who like to drive Porsches and like to hear those engines roar, like me. Okay, I'll take my last break. I'll be back here in just a minute. Okay, I'm back. You know, I've heard so many situations over the years where people go in to get their car serviced and they end up getting told something or sold something and they leave with just kind of a sick feeling in their stomach, like, did I just get ripped off? And I understand that. Uh, I've felt that way on, on different purchases, not automobile-related, but I've felt that way. And one of the things I'd love to be able to do is before you make the decision to do something, before they sell you a, you know, something to flush every single thing out of your vehicle, and, and they end up charging you $1,000 for maybe $200 worth of work, if you could just let me know somehow. Uh, you can send me a text. You know, if you're getting ready, like I say, uh, uh, I have no idea how many people listen to this radio show or broadcast. It could There could be 15 of you out there. I can handle that. If there's 1.5 million, which is unlikely, it is. Uh, it would be kind of hard for me to handle. But before you jump into a major uh, repair or, you know, you're thinking about buying a car and they've, they've priced you uh, the new vehicle at, at such and such a price, and then they've allowed you so much for your trade-in, you know, you can always go home and you can think about it. You don't have to do something right then. One of the old sales tricks is to create a, a sense of urgency that really doesn't exist. Like, well, when this sale's over, it's over. Car business doesn't work like that. Now, at the end of the month, uh, you will find that the rebates will change. But, folks, right now, there aren't any real rebates. There's some There's some low interest rates out there that the manufacturers are using. You can get 0% financing and 1.9% financing. There are a few vehicles that have incentives. Um, a lot of the incentives that exist right now are direct mail incentives to uh, Ford and Chevrolet and Chrysler's and Honda's best prospects or uh, conquest prospects. You know, like, for example, if you're driving a Nissan and Honda 
is having a special promotion on Accords, then they may send you a Conquest mailer, which may include a $1,000 rebate or something like that. But you know, right now, there just aren't a lot of incentives out there. And so the only leverage that you have is your ability to negotiate, which isn't much right now as far as new vehicles, but also what they pay you for your trade-in. And that's where a lot of dealers make up the, the lack of margin on the, the, the car that they're selling by what we call under-allowance, basically giving you less for your vehicle than the actual market value. But you don't know it unless you know what the market value of your vehicle is. I mean, I just had a, an F-450 stolen off of our lot. It was a used vehicle, and it was on our lot. And so my insurance company is wanting to settle with me now. Well, the first, there's two things I need to know. What's the book value of my vehicle? And there, you know, there is no one book. I shouldn't have even said the word book value. What is the market value of my vehicle? And I use four or five different sources to come up with that number that I can prove to an insurance company. The other number I need to know is what do I have in the vehicle? What do I have it on the books for? Because I want to at least get what I have in it out of it. Well, come to find out, the market value on the vehicle that was stolen is about $4,000 higher than what I have in it. And so should I settle for what I have in it? Or should I negotiate with them based on what that current market value of that vehicle is? Well, guess what? I'm going for market value because that's what it's worth. doesn't matter what you paid for it. It's what is it worth now? What's somebody willing to, to pay you for it? <laughs> that's what matters. Well, thanks for listening to this edition of My Car Guru. Again, if you have any questions, send me a text, uh, 423-552-2020. If it's an emergency, I'll try to get back with you as soon as I can. Hopefully, I can be there for you. Everybody needs a guru in their corner, and that's me for you. Well, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.